And good morning, evening, afternoon, everyone. This is Harrison Smith with another episode of Cinema. And uh, going into now episode 101, and I made an announcement on Twitter recently that I'm thinking that, you know, it might be time to start scaling the episode releases back. And the reason why is, uh, which I've tweeted, and that is, I kind of think I've said pretty much all that there is to say, at least on a weekly basis, and limiting cinema episodes to when something really comes up that's important to address, instead of just cranking something out for content, which is really the whole basis of my podcast about not doing something like that, making sure that you always put forth the very best of content that you have and use the most of your creativity instead of just providing product. So I think that is what I'm going to do. But before I go there, and and I don't know when uh, a next episode will drop kind of thing, again, once I have something to say. But just as I came to that conclusion and tweeted something like that, an article did pop up. And I'm providing a link to that article about Barry Diller, uh, the former Fox and Paramount executive, who basically took to, I think it was the Hollywood Reporter, to announce that Hollywood was over, that filmmaking is over. And he is the one to, I guess, call the time of death kind of thing. And I've done previous podcasts on this kind of thing, especially one called The Sky is Falling. I think it was uh, parts one and two, which deal with the idea that COVID uh, pretty much finished off uh, movie theaters and theatrical exhibition, which I do not believe. And these kind of pronouncements get out there. They make some waves. Uh, They talk about the end of, you know, movies and, and cinema and filmmaking and all of that stuff. But yet there's really nothing there to back it up. Now, I will say this in my response to Barry Diller's proclamation or declaration, I should say. It may be the end of old Hollywood. And really, quite frankly, I, I don't know if that's such a bad thing. And now, there, there's good and bad. There are good and bad to, to all of this. But I, I guess what I want to fire back is... Yeah, people like Diller and and all these other big executives that made millions upon millions of dollars every year for running these studios that often many of these studios cranked out more bombs than they did hits, and yet that never affected the executive salaries. I mean, you always read of of layoffs at studios and and you know, workers and all the mid-tier workers and artists and and all that are being laid off or furloughed, but you never hear of the executives being furloughed or laid off. And that's very interesting because yes, maybe that kind of Hollywood is dead now. And maybe that's why Diller is announcing it because to me, it all rings of, well, we got ours, so fuck the rest of you. So these are people that ran a very antiquated system and milked it for everything that they could get. And now that basically the cow is dry, it's time to get out, get out of the barn. Or as I said, once the Titanic hit the iceberg, it's time to jump into that lifeboat. But I'll get to that later. Now, in previous episodes, I've talked about something. Let's go back to what I feel is the beginning. Now, you could argue that it would be television that kind of started it all. And if if you know your film history, you do know that when television first started going very commercial, 
and, you know, the average American was getting a TV set in their home, that it did pose a problem to the film industry. And the film industry reacted in a knee-jerk response, and that is television's trying to kill us. And But it did prompt filmmaking to kind of go to the next level. Now, while color film was nothing new by the 1950s, uh, it started to become more commonplace to start luring people into theaters. Another aspect was 3D. You can't get 3D at home on your television set, and you can't get color on your television set. And also, air conditioning. Air conditioning was utilized by movie theaters to get people to come in off the street out of a hot summer day and come in and partake in all-day movies, the serials, uh, the newsreels, the cartoons, and then your feature film. So the film industry did react. And back in the day also, if, if you do remember or understand, many studios owned their own theaters. There were Warner Theaters and Universal Theaters, and that was before the great deregulation came along and broke up that monopoly. And there, there's some good and bad to all of that as well, too. So you could say that maybe television was the first real threat to the old Roman Empire system of filmmaking. So the studio moguls took note, and especially they started to have to hash out what happens when our movies get on television? How, how do you make money from that? And then celebrities, the stars of these movies, started to understand something very important in that almighty word, syndication. You've probably heard the stories about how the Three Stooges and, an, and a number of other film comedy stars and other stars died broke because they never got a dime from their work being syndicated all over television. And I mean, I grew up in, in the afternoons, on Saturday afternoons especially, watching the Three Stooges. So we have that kind of thing that posed the first real threat to old Hollywood, but then old Hollywood did something smart and they started throwing their power into controlling the content that goes on TV. And their legal teams were much more swift and they weren't, I guess, so complacent as they would become in the post-television era. So then follow me. So let's just say that television was the first threat and Hollywood absorbed that one pretty well. And they found some type of, of economic parity in which they could coexist with television and they eventually owned television and brought it into the fold. So the first threat was kind of neutralized. The next threat will be even worse, the home video revolution. And this is what I've talked about in previous episodes. So you have a technology that comes along that can not only record the information on TV, but preserve it and use for playback later. So now you can record movies and watch them over and over and show them to 10, 20, 30 people. And Hollywood went, whoa, 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 what's going on here? And and they they tried, you know, and so you have your, your anti-piracy and you have, you can't show these films to a certain number of people. And you know, then it, what, what constitutes public exhibition? And I could go on forever about all of this and the legalities of that. What I want to focus on is the idea of releasing studio-controlled content onto home video. What Barry Diller and a number of people don't understand, and actually I think they do understand, and that is these executives willingly worked out deals 
to ensure that their product got turned into home video cassettes, whether it was beta, VHS, Laserdisc, DVD, it doesn't matter. Was there ever a summit among the major studios in Hollywood to actually sit down at a table and say, what are we doing here? Before we go dumping all of our films and our content onto home video, in other words, raiding our libraries, fleecing and liquidating our libraries and putting them on video, because once they're out there, they're out there. Shouldn't we talk about this and actually see if there are some things we might want to hold back? I have always held the argument that there are certain films that should have never been released to home video and that they should have been re-released in theaters every so often for a new generation to appreciate. There are some films that do not belong on home video. And as much as I love Jaws, and I'm going to use this as the example, I was lucky enough to see Jaws in the movie theater in its original 1975 run. I saw it again when it was re-released at a drive-in theater in 1980. Now, between 75 and 80, Jaws did appear on HBO, and then it made its way to video cassette. We did not have a VCR in our home until roughly 1984. So there was a long period of time that if you didn't see Jaws when it was in theaters, you just didn't see it. I got HBO cable, our family did, long after Jaws had done its run on HBO. The next time I saw Jaws after its 1980 re-release in theaters was on ABC when it aired it for its ABC, I don't know if it was Friday or Sunday night movie, it doesn't matter, but it was on network television, cut up by commercials, and actually edited for television where a lot of the scarier stuff was trimmed down. And in addition to that, uh, stuff was added, which really upset me. There's a reason why this stuff was excised from the theatrical print. And this was happening across the board. I mean, The Exorcist, Jaws 2, all of this. I mean you were getting your stuff on network television, and I understand all of that. Video cassette finally came along to the masses, and this is where my point comes into play. Jaws was never meant to be seen on a 25-inch screen, let alone on a cell phone or tablet. Jaws was created as a big screen motion picture, and I'm not sure that Jaws should have ever been released in any other way. And what I'm proposing, and which I've proposed in my previous episodes of this, is that I believe that the studios should have gotten together and had some kind of creative summit where they then agree to meet every so many years and decide on what films they all plan to hold back and keep in their vaults and never release to the public. That these are films that were created to enhance the cultural experience They bind us as people. We share these experiences. And I know this because seeing Jaws again on a big screen at a revival house around 2007, 2008, was again an entirely different experience. I've seen the movie a number of times on home video. I own it on home video. But let's face it, how many times am I really watching Jaws? In fact, More times, you'll catch it on a TV cable channel playing, 
than you will to go over and pull it off your shelf. And I love the idea of hard media. Don't get me wrong there either. But that's a whole different thing when it comes to streaming digital content, which we'll get to in a little bit. But movies like Star Wars, Superman, Superman 2, Raiders of the Lost Ark, Temple of Doom, and you can go on and on. Lawrence of Arabia, go way back, even Citizen Kane. These are films that were meant to be enjoyed on a giant screen and do not lend themselves whatsoever to a smaller screen. Look, you could say, for example, Mildred Pierce, okay? It's a Joan Crawford classic, Oscar winner. Uh, Should that be on the big screen? Yeah, I guess it should be, but television and subsequent nice DVD transfers didn't hurt it either. But there are certain films that even the Library of Congress deems culturally relevant and that I think there should have been some type of Hollywood Washington conference where they sit down with the Library of Conference and Library of Congress and say, "Okay, these are the films you've deemed. We're also going to back you up, and we're not releasing these films to the general public because it diminishes the power of the film and what it does for a nation and a culture." Dumping these movies out also had another problem. It's not like they dumped them out on video where they were given really nice video transfers. Remember, back at the time when VCRs were starting to become commonplace in our households, we had 25-inch televisions. You could argue, well, we had a bigger one. Yeah, if you had those projection, I think they were like Mitsubishi projection TVs, I guess the picture was okay, but by today's standards, they look terrible. So picture quality wasn't exactly at the forefront of everything, and the studios knew this. Remember, these studio executives are running the studios. They are in charge of their vaults. They're in charge of their content. And I'm telling you, what it appears to be is that all of these executives just said, how much can we make from this? Fucking dump them. And that's what they did. They threw Star Wars and Ghostbusters and all these films out on shitty pan and scan copies, grainy transfers. Uh, You look at them, you go, oh my God, this looks awful. Washed out pictures, the colors don't look good, the contrast, the blacks are all crushed, all of these things, it doesn't look good. But that's okay, because you had shitty televisions. And for me, I remember when TV started to catch up with that. Like, okay, now we have this video product, we really have to do something now to make sure this video product looks great. Well, one of the first TVs that I remember that came on the scene was the Sony XBR. And it had these really funky looking speakers stuck to the side. And it had a a bigger screen. And most of all, it was supposed to show like, you know, true colors, real colors, vivid, right? And then something else was going on. Movies were starting to be released on videocassette in something called letterboxing. Because then we finally saw what we were literally missing. And that is almost a third of the film was cut off on either side. You were seeing what is called a full frame transfer, a 4-3 transfer instead of a 16-9 transfer. And movies shown on the big screen have a very different aspect ratio than when they're crushed on television. They don't fit. So what you had to do was focus on the center of action and crop things out. Look at an old pan and scan original, like, I don't know, 76, 77 VHS or beta copy of Jaws. And just look at Brody on the ferry when uh, Larry Vaughn 
is yelling at him on, on the ferry saying, you can't shut down the beaches on your own authority. It's just basically uh, the, the two actors. It's Scheider and it's Hamilton. And they're stuck together in the center of the screen. And you don't even notice that all the other guys that were in the Cadillac, Carl Gottlieb and all the others, they're all cut out. You don't even see them. When you see the widescreen version, you're like, oh my God, I miss like most of the movie. Check that out with Ghostbusters. Check it out with Raiders of Lost Ark. All these big screen movies were crunched and cut to fit the format of your television. And here's my point in giving you this education. The studio executives didn't give a shit. It was a lot of money pouring in. And you could charge $100 or even more per cassette. I remember I bought my mother the cassette box set of Gone with the Wind, which cost me in the 1980s, I'd say close to $150 for two video cassettes. And we're not even talking bonus features, extras, nothing like that. So I remember as a boy running videos at the video store when I was in high school and Aliens is a perfect example. Came out in 1986-87 and I remember that the cassette to buy it if you wanted to own it was at least $100. And that 20th Century Fox, which I believe was under the control of Barry Diller at the time, 20th Century Fox wasn't even cutting a break for the video retailers out there, the distributors. So our store was also buying that video cassette at full retail price. Now, you have to buy six of those, seven of those to stay somewhat competitive. And this was just before grocery stores and gas stations started renting videos for 99 cents. But the price of the video has dropped. The rental has dropped. So how many times do you have to rent that cassette just to break even, let alone if somebody doesn't return it, the late fees, which most people never pay, or the tape gets damaged in the VCR and you have to buy another one. This is why the mom and pop stores started moving out of the way for the gigantic blockbuster type of stores. But that is a whole different story. And I've covered that in this podcast many times. A lot of money was being made by basically dumping your content. And that's what they did. They just dumped it out there. And then when they saw that they could do, you know, letterbox editions, well, there's even more. And then you can do collector's editions and then box sets. And I remember like places like Suncoast Video and Hollywood Video. And in the mall, we had some video store. I think it was called like a Hollywood Video kind of thing. I mean, just shelves and shelves of videos you can buy. And it was amazing to see the different ways that they could package a film. I mean, do you remember like you could see one of those old B horror movies and it could sit alone on a shelf for $9.99 and then you could find it in a box set of like 50 of the greatest horror movies. They just found a way to recycle, recycle, recycle and make tens of millions, if not hundreds of millions of dollars. And all these old studio executives were getting theirs. And what was happening was their, their salaries are increasing and they're getting paid $100 million a year, $20 million a year. Whatever it is, they're being paid far more than what they're worth. And the technology was evolving and starting to move a certain way. And none of them were willing to wake up and see that. So it really came down to, are people going less to the movies? No, because Hollywood then decided the only answer to this is is to step up our game. 
They increased budgets. They made movies bigger and better. Look at the first Terminator compared to Terminator 2. And of course, one of the most flagrant offenders of excess, Carol Co. Pictures, which we'll get to in a little bit. But also there was a convenience factor here. You didn't have to go to the movies anymore. But there were longer windows of when a movie came out in theaters and by the time it finally made it to home video. It could be as long for a while there. It was two, three years. And then the window shrunk to about a year. And then it slowly started getting under a year to where literally it could be months. And I'll talk about 1989's Batman as a shining example. Convenience is also what killed print. And a lot of these studio executives could easily see what was going on. And that is, is with the advent of the internet and the home computer, suddenly everybody, I mean, for a while, I shouldn't say suddenly, for a while there, you still bought your newspaper, you bought your magazines, and you know they, they all had their web-based versions and formats, but that's kind of what you went to as an afterthought. They weren't the number one place where you chose to get your news or your entertainment news or anything like that, or your printable content. You bought the paper. It showed up in your driveway. And sometimes it was just as difficult to walk down the driveway to get your news. But you didn't have to travel for a paper or even walk that driveway to get it once the internet came along. And that also went for your books. Remember, Amazon started out as a gigantic bookstore. And it became convenient. You didn't have to go to Walden Books into the mall anymore to get your books. And then they had Half.com where you can get your books half price. And then books started getting transferred to digital and the good old Kindle came along. And that, for me, is what put the final nail in the coffin of the mall retailers and bookstores. Why pay for the hard or softback when Kindle can give it to you for half? Blogs were also ignored, just as Hollywood ignored the MP3 file sharing shot that was taken across their bows. Look, the plan was simple. Keep making ridiculous salaries by studio executives. Destroy theater chains by giant budget films needing huge cuts from ticket sales to cover their nut. Now I'm going to go into that in just a moment. But what people didn't realize is there was starting to become alternative news on the internet. And other websites that started out as blogs were becoming big, big news sources. As more and more people plugged into the internet, and as the internet got better and it went from dial-up, an AOL to a diversified platform of other servers and suddenly now dial up where remember you could get disconnected if someone tried to call you or your call waiting activated. We went away from that. Then we went to DSL. Then we went to cable and fiber optic. And suddenly people were no longer buying newspapers. And this was a huge lesson that the studio should have been watching because the tortoise is catching up with the hare. So now let me tell you about my movie theater days, which I did a piece on this called Enjoy the Show, if you go back and look at my episodes, about the summer of 1989 and when Batman opened up. But a lot of people would come to the movies and they would rightfully bitch at my theater. I used to be an assistant manager at a mall multiplex. And they would rightfully bitch about the price of movie tickets and the price of concessions. But after a while of working there, I started taking it personally because it wasn't our fault. It wasn't the Lowe's Theater chain that was trying to do this. Believe it or not, the Lowe's Theater chain, as a lot of other movie theater chains, were fighting just to keep their heads above water. And why? So let's just use $6 at that time 
as the average price of a movie ticket. Today, the average price is between 10 and 12. So it's doubled since the time I'm talking about. Out of that $6, the studios, the distributors, took most of that money. So we're looking at, uh, I remember that, I think it was one of the Nightmare on Elm Streets where New Line took so much. I think they showed us a breakdown that Lowe's Theaters was making a dime off of every ticket sold for one of the bigger, I think it was Nightmare on Elm Street 4 at the Dream Master. And they were making a dime, a fucking dime. And I know that was the case for Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. And it was also the case with Batman. That's why movies had to stay so long in theaters. The distributors wanted them to have legs in theaters because after so many weeks, the the take by the studio and distributor, that drops because the movie is no longer a first-run movie. They all know that the major money is dropped within the first two weeks of release. And that's when they want it. And I think it was like up to six weeks And someone can argue with me on that on the times, but it was like around that. It was like a month and a half, two months where the studios took the lion's share of the ticket price. And that is why when a movie like 1998's Godzilla came out, that theater owners went to the screenings at NATO, the National Association of Theater Owners. And when they watched the movie, they all panicked because they knew the movie was going to suck. And they knew that Sony, TriStar, was taking almost 90% of the fucking profits. They knew they were going to go broke with this movie. They knew that the 1998 Godzilla was bad and they had pumped so much into getting people excited about this movie and they knew they were being delivered a bomb. And that's horrible. So this is another reason why when people decry the theatrical experience is over and that's because the greedy Hollywood studios wanted to make sure they got theirs. And fuck the rest of you. And that includes Barry Diller. So what do you do to offset that financial loss? Well, what you do is you hike up your prices at the concession stand. That's why you're paying $2 for a Kit Kat bar. And yeah, okay, it's a little bit bigger than your average Kit Kat bar. But it's still just a Kit Kat bar that probably cost the company $0.75, per bar. And they're charging two. I remember we had two twenty-five for a Kit Kat bar. That's why you're paying five dollars for a bucket of popcorn, six dollars for a bucket of popcorn, and on and on and on. They gotta shift that income need elsewhere, and that's what movie theaters uh, distributors started doing. They started taking this avenue to make up for that. And when I said before about movie distributors, like, well, wait a minute, why? So Lowe's was taking? No, no, no. I mean, when studios were actually doing their own distribution as well too, or they had other companies with a different name, but really it's all a branch of the studio. So they get the most money. The actual legitimate theater chains were losing money on these big releases. And until the film was declared a second or third run, that was when they hoped that the movie, like a movie like Batman, or Home Alone, or even Ghostbusters. Look, those are movies theater owners love because they'd stay in theaters for a year. I am telling you, we had Home Alone, the first Home Alone, from I think it was November, all the way through till April, and that fucker was still making money. And let's go back, for example, Ghostbusters. When I was a kid working at that same theater as an usher, 
We had Ghostbusters for a year. It played one year in the theater. That's incredible. Now, Batman in 1989 did something different because, again, studio executives knew we can just keep milking this cow. Batman came out. It was the monster hit that everybody remembers. But what many forget is it came out in June and it was on home video by October. And people were going nuts for a movie in theaters that eventually they could just get on video cassette. And that's exactly what happened. By Halloween, the 1989 Batman was on home video and you could already start taking deposits on it, I think by August or September at the video stores. So this is all about greed. And speaking of which, a studio like Carolco, run by Mario Casar, exemplified all of this. Their idea was throw massive amounts of money at a movie by making it an event. Terminator 2 wasn't just a movie. It's a fucking movie. It's huge. They paid Arnold Schwarzenegger, I think, what, $24 million on top of paying him with a Lear jet. They gave him his own private jet. That was all part of his pay package. Movies, are, studios are spending incredible amounts of money to get you to come, but they're also taking all of the profits, which throw the theaters into chaos. Juice up the blockbuster, get people used to that level, and keep expectations constantly rising. And through all of this, Hollywood believed it was an island. It was impregnable. It could not be invaded. No one could do what Hollywood does. That's what they believed. Until the digital revolution changed all that. Now, I remember when Napster first appeared, and I did an episode on this. That was the beginning of the end. And any smart, far-sighted studio executive, movie executive, should have seen what was coming. I said right out, it's only a matter of time till they start sharing video files. The technology just wasn't there yet. The bandwidth just wasn't there yet. But it was coming. It was all just a matter of time. And then until the revolution of prosumer cameras and computers powerful enough to render Hollywood-level effects subtly, it was changing. And those fat, lazy executives, that old guard, the old kings and queens, sat in their towers and dismissed it all as nothing as the barbarians approached the gates. Then, as the blogs that I told you about, they were the tortoises in the race against the old guard hares. Social media giants grew under the guise of vanity and sophomoric entertainment, Facebook, YouTube, and Apple. They grew online, and along with them, came the power to stream, and of course, Netflix. And at first, Netflix was deemed the DVD killer and not much more of a threat until it started venturing into televised content. And the old school Hollywood executives knew this, but their answer was not to look into understanding this new streaming technology better or even forming a creative summit to address the barbarians at the gates. No, instead, they padded their salaries. They ordered bigger and fatter films. They raided creativity and turned comic books into a cloying juggernaut that changed film expectations and in some ways the equivalent of crack or meth to the masses. They got them hooked on just one hit thanks to the CGI drug and now the addicts wanted more. The good films, drama, even good horror and comedy, they were pushed from the big screens and relegated back to the small with streaming networks and cable 
that saw a TV renaissance in quality while the big screen churned out reboots, remakes, reimaginings, and superhero cape confections. Fat studios became giant sloths. Their revenues started to fall by 40% by 2007. But the executives continued to profit. They knew Rome was falling, and they didn't care. This was a get mine before it's all gone mentality. Barry Diller, subject of this article that inspired this episode, was one of these people who saw the value of technology and tech companies over studios. He knew the Titanic was sinking. He felt the iceberg hit. And he had his own personal lifeboat at the ready when the time came. And this recent article that I'm talking about with his statement shows he's getting in. Disney got smart. Seeing the hemorrhaging, they bought up the Marvel, Star Wars, and Indiana Jones franchises. And for now, they can stay afloat longer than the other studios, especially thanks to its recent acquisition of 20th Century Fox and their franchises. Look, you don't have to like the content that Disney is doing, and you can say that Disney Star Wars sucks. All of that is fine. However, their machine is running well, and the entire industry wants to copy it. Hollywood has been devouring itself for decades, but now it's become Pac-Man. The turn toward overseas box office has seen foreign and Chinese investment into Hollywood. The Meg, the giant shark movie, remember that? Was a Chinese hand job. It's so blatantly pandered to the Chinese and the industry and also Chinese audiences to make sure that it would recoup overseas. In fact, I believe the Meg was released overseas before it was even released here. Now, this did not work so well in kissing the Chinese asses for Independence Day 2, which was heavily financed by Chinese money. The on-screen ass-kissing and casting did not return a profit for that shitty film, and it really was awful. I might just end up doing a separate Independence Day 2 review, uh, or not even a review, an episode on why that movie epitomizes cinema, C-Y-N-E-M-A. Barry Diller went from running Paramount to Fox to his own tech company. He knew the iceberg was out there, and he knew the entire ship was on a collision course. Now he takes to the press after the ship hits and yells, I'm out of here. Good luck, suckers. Diller is known for decades that Hollywood was moving toward making product, not real artistic content. He once said at an entertainment summit, they don't make movies. They make hats and whistles in referring to Hollywood in the industry. He knew that the rising tech companies would generate a far greater return on investment for speculators than movies or their own studios that made them. No moves were made to embrace, work with, and assimilate the rising technology. It was an us and them mentality. Again, barbarians at the Empire's gates, or if you're in a Disney Star Wars kind of mood, rebels at the Death Star. Every studio head saw what was happening. And like they should have done in the 70s home video revolution, instead of embracing and in the long run bringing the streaming technology to heel by their sides, they ignored it. They just kept doing what they do, spend more money, inflate those budgets, make the films bigger, not necessarily better, and keep feeding the masses their processed shit and junk food while lining their pockets and bank accounts. Hollywood still seems to predict their hits with tea leaves, 
while new tech and streaming companies do it with carefully cultivated and verified data. Streaming programs are made almost tailored to the data that was mined, while Hollywood just throws enough shit against the wall like Ghostbusters 2016 without really seeing if anyone will actually fucking turn out for their big bloated box office monster. And then come the unions. You have unions working in these studios, which also bring down the entire system and inflate those budgets. The bloated union system goes back to what is called its legendary, the raindrop story. And the story was basically on set, uh, an actress, a very well-known actress was wearing a coat. It started to rain. Some water got on the, the actress's coat and a PA, I believe the story changes all the time. But a PA came over to wipe the water off the coat for continuity and a wardrobe designer came over and flipped out saying that they were going to file a grievance uh, against this person with the union for doing their job. Their job was to wipe that raindrop off that coat. This is also another problem that really exemplifies an old bloated system. And that old bloated system, it's like dinosaurs in the tar pits while the little mammals scamper about them on the land and reproducing and getting ready to inherit the earth from the big, dumb dinosaurs. Netflix, Facebook, Xbox, YouTube, Amazon, and so many more are streaming original content right now in something that only a few years ago many thought was impossible. Remember what Hollywood said, no one can do what we do. Apparently they can. The CGI craze will eventually replace stars. Everyone in the industry that knows what they're talking about will tell you, star power is diminishing. They're hanging on to the last of these big name stars. In the future, we will create stars. They will no longer be created by studios, executives, or by the luck of the universe. Stars will be created to run alongside classic stars. Imagine one day uh, a new star created in CGI working side-by-side by by classic Sean Connery and James Bond, or Tom Hanks working with Marilyn Monroe. Rogue One showed us just what is coming with Peter Cushing. I had been warning of this for over two decades, and no one cared, and many thought I was nuts. As early as 1998, I was saying that classic star estates should be moving to protect the images of the deceased stars and the living big names like Ford and Hanks, or even back in the day of Connery and others, that they should have been moving to license their images properly for the day that they are gone. Studios, instead of looking for better writing, they look for the holy grail of money-making in AI that will one day write the perfect blockbuster. Artificial intelligence will write that script. Instead of doing real research like the streaming networks do, they will put a thousand chimps in a room and hope one stumbles upon the next hit. This is why the Hollywood system is crumbling. The rule of aged, nearsighted, and selfish monarchies that did nothing to evolve, change, or embrace the technology that would eventually bring it down. And it's still not too late for Hollywood to control its own destiny. But it just doesn't know how, or maybe even better, it just doesn't care. It's used to running the way it has since its inception. It's run by those who want theirs. Take it all now and do nothing to change systemically. Hollywood is about dealing with the symptoms. To go even further, instead of curing the herpes virus, it deals with outbreaks, but never cures the disease 
that ravages that town. Articles that periodically exclaim the discovery or appreciation for groups like women love Titanic or women love horror. Therefore, women are a newly discovered force that is to be targeted because they spend money on tickets and is indicative of really a short-sighted system. Comedy is a prime casualty in this, decimated to Adam Sandler entries and non-offensive big-budget star-driven garbage that worries more about marketing than actually being funny. Don't offend, but if you must, do it just enough for a chuckle, but let the audience know you're only kidding. That's why Adam Sandler could literally exact revenge on his audience in the industry by using Netflix to make Hubie Halloween to punish them for not loving and giving Oscar love to uncut gems. Is Hollywood over? Maybe the old way. However, the new technology is not evil. Streaming is here to stay, and it can be just as excessive as the old system if not managed properly. However, it has given us the ability as consumers to take a certain amount of control over our entertainment destinies. There's a lot of shit that can happen, and no, it will not be the days of Louis B. Mayer or even Sid Sheinberg ever again. We could see a totally dark side of entertainment come forward with the advent of virtual reality and the increasing power of CGI. Godzilla vs. Kong showed us hints of where this, <laughs> where this is going. We saw almost a total fusion between movies and video games with Godzilla vs. Kong. Godzilla vs. Kong was less a film than it was a video game, and the only thing missing was our ability to control the outcome. And that is coming, thanks to choose-your-own-adventure style technology that I personally experienced at the William Morris Endeavor offices two years ago. It was incredible. And the word is, it's already being incorporated into feature films with one major franchise already in the works, putting this technology to its storylines. So different is not bad. It's just different. This is Harrison Smith. Thank you for listening. I don't think Hollywood and movie making is over, but it is going through a change. Let's see what comes out of the cocoon. Thank you.